Thank you guys for leading us in musical worship. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. Isaiah, chapter 5. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. If you take your Bible and open it right up to the middle, you'll open up to Psalm, usually. Then flip over to the right. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, chapter 5. And in reflecting on the songs that, that we've sung, joy to the world, the Lord has come, this glorious day, and then the one now, he's our remedy. There's this tension every year in, in Advent, um, and just in, in general, that we live um, between these two bookends, where Christ has come, and we know that he is coming again. We've, we've celebrated this in song tonight. You've Uh, been taught this. Have you ever wondered why he had to come the first time? And was Jesus God's plan B? So if if I get asked to preach again, uh, that will be the sermon that I'll, I'll do. Answer the question, was Jesus God's plan B? Did God just finally say, well, I guess I just have to come down there myself? Well, the answer is no. That means plan A failed, and we know God's doesn't fail. But there's this truth in the scripture that we can't allow to escape from our hearts and our minds. That is to always remember why Jesus had to come in the first place. And the season of Advent in the church calendar is a time for Christians to reflect on its ancestry, to reflect on its Origins to, uh, as Brad was saying earlier during the prayer time, to, to identify with God's people in the Old Testament. And those of us uh, on, on this side of the cross who, who have the New Testament, I don't know that we can fully understand or fully appreciate the depth of desperation, the dryness, and the longing God's people had for Messiah to come. So in praying and discerning of what God wants us to listen to tonight, not just you, but me, us, as Isaiah 5 is one of the readings from Advent, and it's uh, Isaiah is this poet. He's this prophet, but also a poet. If uh, you've spent any time in Isaiah, you might find yourself saying, okay, Isaiah, get to the point. What's the point here? You know, just give me uh, one, two, and three. But Isaiah's not that guy. He's that guy who's going to be flowery, flowery, however you say the word, with his language. He's going to be poetic. He's going to paint these pictures. And so tonight, let's be reminded of the righteousness of our God. He has every right to bring judgment And we'll also be reminded of the depth of compassion and love of our God. That he has chosen to spare us, his people. He is coming again. The first time, Hebrew says, he came to bear sins. But the second time, he will come to bring salvation. 
Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to read uh, 25 verses. So follow along with me as we try to get into the mind of Isaiah, thus getting into the mind of God. He begins the fifth chapter, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, and even hewed out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes. That's a rightful expectation, right? He bought the best hill, the most fertile hill. He, he took a year to clear it of stones, and he purchased the finest vines money could buy, and he put it in this most fertile hill, and the grapes expected it to grow, expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. Now this is God speaking now. What more could I have done for my vineyard than than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall. It will be trampled by wild animals. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant God delighted in. He looked for justice but saw injustice. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of wretchedness. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room and you alone are left in the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts has taken this oath. Indeed, many houses will become desolate. Grand and lovely ones will be without inhabitants. A ten-acre vineyard will yield only six gallons, and ten bushels of seed will yield only one bushel. Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the night inflamed by wine. At their feast, they have lyre, harp, tambourine, flute, and wine. They do not perceive the Lord's actions and they don't see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile because they lack knowledge. Their dignitaries are starving. Their people are parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol enlarges its throat and opens wide its enormous jaws, and down go Zion's dignitaries, her masses, her crowds, and those who carouse in her. Humanity is brought low. Man is humbled, and haughty eyes are humbled. But the Lord of hosts is exalted by his justice, and the holy God is distinguished by righteousness. Lambs will graze as if they own the pastures, and strangers or sheep will eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who drag wickedness with cords of deceit, 
and pull sin along with cart ropes and those who say, let God hurry up and do his work so that we can see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel take place so we can know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own opinion and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who are fearless at mixing beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes straw and as dry grass shrivels in the flame, so their roots will become like something rotten and their blossoms will blow away like dust. For they have rejected the instruction of the Lord of hosts and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. He raised his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked. Their corpses were like garbage in the streets. In all this, his anger is not removed. And his hand is still raised to strike. See what I mean about the poet? What is Isaiah saying? Well, it's clear. We'll spend a few moments here. Let's, let's try to unpack what Isaiah is saying. If you've got a pen or a pencil and you take notes or you write in the scriptures, there are some woes we need to circle. The, this word woe, you see the first one in verse 8. Uh, it's, it's a word just kind of um, affiliated with a funeral. It's just, man, what a tragedy. What a tragedy that this thing occurred And almost like an accident, like it didn't have to, but it did. But there are five woes here that Isaiah mentions. The first one is in verse 8, just circle woe. The second one, verse 11, there's woe, circle that. Verse 18, there's another woe. Verse 20, there's a woe. And 21 is connected with 20. And then 22, that last woe. Now as we go through these different, the sins of God's people, keep in mind, I've I've asked the end of verse 25 to remain on the screen. This picture. God's anger has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. Just that idea of His hand ready to attack. We want to keep this picture in our mind as we go through the scripture. Now, the first, well, before we get into these woes, let's kind of look at this song about the vineyard. Have you ever tried to grow anything? Anybody have a garden here? Anybody with a green thumb? Okay, a couple of people. Now, how many of you have tried to grow something? Okay, a lot more people. Have you ever tried to grow something or build something? And you follow the directions, you did everything right. And it did not turn out like you expected it to. One plus one did not equal two. That's exactly the picture that God's painting to his people. He's saying, what else do you need? I delivered you from your enemies, brought you out of Egypt... You stood before some water and the world's greatest military chasing you. The water parted. You walked through there. 
I took care of you 40 years in the desert. I gave you my law so you knew how to obey me. I gave you some leaders, Moses, Aaron, gave you some priests. Why do you continue to rebel? That's the picture of the vineyard. And what is it that God is disappointed in with his people? What is the rebellion that his people have fallen into? And what is it that you and I can fall into? What are those sins that even after years of following Jesus, even after years of being an established congregation, what are those areas that we can fall into? The first one is greed. Look at there in verse 8. Those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room and you are alone left in the land. Basically, this is the picture of somebody just continuing to add on to their house. The house isn't big enough. I don't have enough land. I want everybody out. I'm going to buy up all the land, push everyone out and say, mine. This doesn't belong to you. Mine. Greed. We can't get enough. This is what God says in verse 9. You want to be greedy? There's coming a day when all your houses will be empty. You want to be greedy? There's going to come a day when no matter how much farmland you have, you're just going to get a little bit of crop. Greed. The second one, is selfishness, self-indulgence. You see that this uh, verse 11 here, woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the evening inflamed by wine. Now, is God against us having good time? No. In fact, the marriage feast of the Lamb, when Jesus returns, uh, he, he, it's going to be a big party. A party like you and I have never been to before. It's food, drink. We're to celebrate that. In fact, Christ, as the last sign that he gave his disciples, the bread and wine, the drink, he says, look, when you've gathered together for this meal, you do this in remembrance of me. It is not the pleasure we receive from food and drink that God is attacking here. What he's mentioning is the self-indulgence. Getting up in the morning, you know the question, is it five o'clock yet? no one drinks before five, right? Or is it noon? South Louisiana, I think it's noon. The point is, looking at the end of verse 12, they do not perceive the Lord's actions. They don't see the work of His hands. This is a picture of someone who's become very um, inward-focused, just self-indulgence, become blind to the work of God, just pursuing Self, a hedonism uh, would be a word. And God says in verse 14, he paints this picture, he says, you want to give yourself to food and drink? You want to become self-indulgent? There's coming a day when Sheol, when the grave will open its throat and its mouth wider than your mouth can open up, and down you will go. Verse 17, this is a beautiful picture lambs will graze as if in their own pastures this would be the meat for the feast right i mean you go and kill the lamb slaughter the lamb you know go kill the cow so we can have some steak 
And this picture is there's coming a day when the lambs will act as if they own the pasture. None will be taken to the slaughterhouse as a consequence to sin. The third sin here, verses 18 through 19, this is a cynical and critical spirit. And as one, it's 35. Man, our generation, we have perfected sarcasm, cynicism, criticism. I know we're not the first ones to discover that. I know that. But it just seems that we've passed that on as well to the younger ones. A cynical and critical spirit. But look what happens here. There are the, these people who, who drag wickedness with, with ropes of deceit. So, so the rope that they're dragging it with is called deceit. And, and they pull sin along with, with these reins. And they say with their cynicism and their critical spirit, if God's going to work, why isn't he working? How come I don't see any churches who are New Testament? Well, forget it all. How come I don't see any churches acting like the Bible says they should be acting? Why isn't God's plan unfolding itself? Why isn't the Holy One of Israel doing what He said He's going to do? The next woe, verse 20 through 21. This sin is no regard for God's design. It's to pervert and to distort and to discard holiness. See in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute dark for light and light for dark, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to these guys who are wise in their own opinion, clever in their own sight. The sin is to distort and to discard God's holiness. To call what is evil good and to call what is good evil. And we definitely see that in our day. We can see that in our own lives. And then finally, this last woe in verse 22, 23. These are people who celebrate injustice. This, those who are heroes at drinking wine and fearless at mixing beer, uh, basically to... I read a quote on this. It said, these people are small in the great things and great in the small things. Meaning, people who can drink wine and mix beer are known as heroes. It's like, so what? In verse 23, they acquit the guilty and they deprive the innocent. That's the opposite of what God asked his people to do. God asks that the guilty not be acquitted and that the innocent not receive injustice. So these five woes, greed, self-indulgence, no, no discipline, cynical and critical spirit, distorting and discarding God's holiness, and then celebrating injustice, you can see how these build on each other. You can see it easily in this, in this scripture. What begins as, as just a little bit more of me wanting to say mine. What begins as maybe an, an innocent thought of, well, Lord, can, can't I just take a little more? 
I remember uh, upon graduating from uh, university, got my uh, second guitar. It, well, I call it my first real one. It was a Taylor. It's just just like this, a 714 CE, and it cost me a lot of money. Even now, it'd be a lot of money. <laughs> and when I asked Cynthia about um, marriage, of course, I wasn't going to ask if she was going to marry me until I knew what was she what she was going to say. I needed to know if it was going to be yes or no before I proposed. You know, I'm just—it's my baggage. You can pray for me on that. <laughs> so we were talking about rings, and I said, "Well, what kind of ring would you like?" And she said, "I, I don't care what you get, as long as it costs more than your guitar." <laughs> I was like, "Oh man, Lord, what is this one you have made?" Hmm. So at that point. God used that, really, as a tool to help me let go of things that really are, are worthless, meaningful, my guitar. And we sang it in a song. Uh, you know, God, we, we open our hands to, to help us hold less those things we don't need to hold so tightly. Help us hold them less. Help, help us hold these things loosely. But it starts with greed. It starts with this idea of entitlement that I deserve just a little bit more. You know the tragedy with God's people wanting to add on to their house or acquire more land? He told his people, you don't own any of it. He says, I, either in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, he says, you are just tenants here. And every 50 years, the land was supposed to go back to its original owners. It was divided up by tribes, by families. One family would get this piece, one family would get that piece and so forth and so on. And every 50 years, it would revert back to whoever's it was. So God's people were even distorting what God had set up. So greed begins there, and it, it builds into this, of course it causes us to look inward, and then we begin to just want to satisfy our own pleasures. We become numb to the work of God. We don't perceive Yahweh's actions, as verse 12 says. And we, we begin to, we get blind to the work of His hands. We stop celebrating the grace of God in our life. And we stop celebrating the grace of God in other people's lives. And when we hear people talk about God working in their lives, we just yawn and say, been there, done that. Old news. From this inward focus... Of course, it's just going to create a cynical and critical spirit because that's what's in us naturally. And when we develop the cynicism and this criticism that is not of God, it results in us distorting God's design and having no regard for God's design, just discarding His holiness. And when we toss out God's holiness and God's design, all we're left with is to celebrate Injustice. Now, how did God's people get to this point? How do you and I get to that point? Well, look the end of verse 24. God says, Just as the tongue of fire consumes straw, and as dry grass shrivels in the flame, you can picture that in your head. Their roots will become like something rotten and their blossoms will blow away like dust. Why? They have rejected the instruction of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
Isaiah says. When we reject and despise God's word, when we stop living in submission to his revealed will, when we stop living in submission to one another, to brothers and sisters, when we isolate ourselves, it's thin ice. All of us love accountability partners whenever things are going well, right? But when we've been up all night staring at a computer screen, we don't want to go to our accountability partner meeting in the morning, right? Nobody likes accountability when things are going bad. But that's when we need it. We must not reject or despise God's word or the power of his spirit when his word is spoken to us by brothers and sisters or by a pastor. Because his people have rejected and despised his word, it leads them to commit these sins. And because his people commit sin, God's righteous and holy and just character require that he do what? Punish that sin. There we get verse 25. Therefore, and you know the cheesy saying, whenever you see therefore, you need to ask what's it there for. Therefore, in light of the first 24 verses, the Lord's Yahweh, whenever you see Lord, all caps, that's God's name. That's Yahweh. That's not master or, or, or um, boss. When it's all caps, that's the name, Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh's anger burns against his people. He raised his hand against them and he struck them. Their corpse like garbage in the street. It's just common as garbage laying there. In all this, his anger is not removed and his hand is still raised to strike. Now Isaiah goes on to, as he finishes this chapter, he predicts the exile of God's people, a real historical event. But it is ultimately pointing to the separation of God's people from himself. God is going to strike his people that Isaiah is talking to, and he's going to use other nations to do it. But ultimately, who does God strike? Let's turn to Isaiah 53 a chapter you know very well and a chapter that helps us resolve this tension. When I find myself being greedy, when I find myself numb to God's work, when I find myself being cynical or critical beyond constructive criticism, when I find myself wanting to discard God's holiness and when I find myself wanting to celebrate injustice as a believer and then I know in my head well God you have to punish someone his wrath is being poured out on all of humanity and only those who trust in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will be spared from this judgment that's to come. This terrible, awful, and I use those words like awful is where we get the word awesome. This terrible, awful, awesome judgment that is to come. 
Those of us who are under the blood of Christ, we will be spared this wrath. And this is where we can celebrate our hope and our joy. Isaiah 53, beginning in in verse 2, talking about the suffering servant. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or splendor that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like the one people turn away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains But we in turn regarded him as stricken, as struck down by God and afflicted. Now, you and I are the sinners in this equation. You and I are the ones guilty of greed, guilty of self-indulgence, guilty of cynicism and unholy criticism. You and I are the ones who are guilty of discarding God's holiness. You and I are the ones who are guilty of celebrating injustice. But in verse 5, God's suffering servant was pierced because of our transgressions. He's crushed because of our iniquity. Punishment for our peace is on Him. And we are healed by His Wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And Yahweh has punished him for the iniquity of us all. When God's hand, his anger has not turned away, his hand is still raised to strike. And instead of striking you, instead of striking me into eternal damnation, would I deserve every second of it? His hand bypasses me in His eternal providence and grace and mercy and it slaps His Son. He was oppressed and afflicted yet He didn't open His mouth to complain just like a lamb led to slaughter or a sheep silent before her shearers. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Although he had done no violence, He had not spoken deceitfully. Yet Yahweh was pleased to crush him when he made him sick. Why would God be pleased to crush his son? Friends, this is very important. Jesus did not tell the Father If I go down and die for them, then will you love them? That's not what he asked. 
It's because of the Father's deep love for us that He would send His Son, His only Son, whom He loved, to be the propitiation for our sins. You see how Advent can be such a glorious time, such a a defeating time at moments. I'm ready for Christmas. I was happy to hear Joy to the World tonight. We're we're not doing that yet until Christmas. And this has been a long two weeks so far of just trying to connect with God's people in the Old Testament. But this is the beautiful picture of God. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. God says, yes, you do, because I'm going to destroy you for rebelling against me. And then here we see the same prophet We hear him say, God's hand will bypass us and he will crush his suffering servant. Why will he do that? Look at verse 11. He will see it out of his anguish and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities Therefore, I, God says, will give him, my servant, the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. And Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, I will lose none. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the rebels. Advent, the word means to arrive. And Christ has come to bear the sins of those whom the Father loves. And Christ is coming again to sit on the judgment throne to judge everything that's been said and everything that's been done of those who believe and those who don't believe. And only those who have put their trust and hope that God's hand of anger has been satisfied by the death and resurrection of Jesus, only those will survive this judgment. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, Christians can say, only the blood of Christ All I have is Christ. All my hope is in Christ. That's the only hope I've got. That's the only ticket I've got. It says the work of Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, as a congregation who's been around for a few years now, I want to encourage you not to become stale in your pursuit of God. For those of you that may have been following Jesus for decades, don't become stale in your pursuit of God and Christ. I beg you to repent of any greed that may be in your heart, lest it lead to you just celebrating outright injustice. And I'm pleading with you to see the love of the Father. See desires not to punish you, but to punish His Son so that you and I may be forgiven of our sins 
and celebrate this Advent and the following Advents in ways that the people of the Old Testament could never celebrate. This is the word that God has laid on my heart to share with you. And if there's anything I've said that's not clear, I pray that Holy Spirit, by the time it got to your ears, make it clear. And if there's anything you'd like to talk about after the service, uh, any suggestions, comments, misrepresentations, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Maybe I'll open the floor now. Is there any question that you have based on what we've, I was going to say we've discussed, but we didn't discuss anything. Based on what I've said, is there any glaring question or any elders of the ring, any clarification that that I need to make? Okay, take it up with Pastor Josh. And, uh, but seriously, if there's anything you want to talk about, if you want to solidify your relationship with Jesus, talk to me or Matt, or one of the elders, Brad, afterwards. We, we want to foster your relationship with Jesus. Long-time Christians, cultural Christians, please don't cling to your faithful church attendance. Please don't cling to the hours of volunteer service that you give, even in Jesus' name. Please don't cling to the morality of your parents. Please don't cling to the vocation of your grandparents. Cling only to the work of Christ on the cross. That's your only hope. That's the only cause we celebrate in Advent. It's the only cause we celebrate throughout the whole year. Christ has come, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We're going to respond in musical worship, so I'll ask you to uh, take a moment to pray, to reflect on the Word of God as uh, the musical worship leaders come up and, and close us out with uh, songs of, of celebration. <laughs>